Welcome to the Third City Christian Church Podcast. This week's message is Cupid Shuffle, Part 1, Define the Relationship, recorded Sunday, February 5th, 2023. If you have a story about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending an email to podcast at thirdcityc.org. Now here's Parker with today's message. The first time I was ever exposed to pornography was the sixth grade at age 11. I was at a buddy's house, and his father had just so poorly hidden a stack of magazines. And I remember flipping through the pages and feeling absolutely electrocuted, and at the same time, confused about what I was seeing. And there was nothing in my life up until that point that had completely changed the way I saw the world and the way that I saw myself in an instant. And maybe you were around that age too. Maybe you were a little bit younger. Maybe that's how you found out and learned what sex was and how it exists in our world. The American Psychological Association found that the average age of pornography exposure was 13 years old, the youngest exposure being five, and the oldest being 26. Noteworthy that there was no mention of those who have not been exposed to pornography or sexually explicit content within the study. What effect has this had on us? Marianne Layden, co-director of the Sexual Trauma and Psychopathology Program at the University of Pennsylvania Center for Cognitive Therapy, called porn, quote, the most concerning thing to psychological health that I know of existing today. Layden goes on. The Internet's a perfect drug delivery system because you're anonymous, you're aroused, and have role models for those behaviors. Layden said, to have a drug pumped into your house 24-7 for free, and children know how to use it better than adults know how to use it. It's a perfect delivery system if we want to have a whole generation of young addicts who will never have the drug out of their minds. She said this 20 years ago. That's before smartphones. That never-ending appetite of pornography has spilled into the real world, through app-driven hookup culture. Back in the old days, you had to go outside and actually go talk to somebody and meet them. These days, you can swipe on your phone and virtually have sex delivered to your door. The majority's thought towards sex is that it's nothing different than eating and drinking. I'm just satisfying a need, that there's no inherent meaning to any of it. Theologian and professor Beth Felker-Jones says, our world treats bodies as expendable. And if we can convince ourselves that sex doesn't matter and that our bodies don't matter, then we are not only free to abuse it, but we're free from any responsibility towards it. Convenient. If bodies don't matter, sex doesn't matter. But if bodies matter, what we do with sex matters. Dr. Nancy Piercy points this out. While most people think that Christianity has a very low view of the body and sexuality and that our hypersexualized Western culture has a higher view, she boldly claims it's the exact opposite. It's the Christian who has the highest view of the human body and its intrinsic value. That our bodies are not just a bag of bones to be used as we will but that they're a priceless masterpiece that reflects the character of a supreme artist. She concludes, The truth is Christianity has a much more respectful view of our psychosexual identity 
It is not anti-sex. It is pro-body. And the main problem of sin is not that we have bodies, but that we put things besides God at the center of our lives and turn them into idols. Tim Keller has a famous idea. An idol is usually a good thing that we make ultimate, and we say, unless I have that, I am nothing. Will sex deliver you from being nothing? So here we are. Sex is a good thing, made an ultimate thing, turned destructive thing. The beauty of sex has been hijacked. And as I left that moment, as a sixth grade boy, like I said, nothing has changed me as instantly as that moment. Few things. I can't say nothing. It's like that was the moment that I experienced that was the closest to when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they ate of the tree of good and evil. And it says their eyes were opened. God warned them if they ate from that tree, they would die. And they were lied to by being called the prince of all lies. That God's boundaries that he gave were because he was holding out good things on them and he's not to be trusted. Instead of the truth that they were given an option to choose something besides God in order to bring true love to the relationship. They were lied to. The being said, you won't die. You're not going to die. And it looked good. And they wanted it, so they took it. Regardless of the boundary that God had set and warned them about, and immediately they experienced death. But not the death they were expecting. It was death to their innocence. It was death to their integrity. It was death to their conscience. And they now felt like they had to cover up themselves and hide. And who were they hiding from? Do you remember? God. The very one who created them and created everything to be good, even their sexuality. And now shame is a part of the story. God comes to them and says, where are you? He knows where they're at. He's God. He's saying, why have you left my side? Adam says, I was afraid of you now because I knew I was naked. He goes, whoa, who told you you were naked? I was deceived, Adam said. I was lied to. So now I hide. Indeed, the reason the fall is such a tragedy is precisely because humans have such high value to begin with. When a cheap trinket is broken, we toss it aside without a second thought, but when a priceless work of art is destroyed, we're heartbroken. The reason sin is so tragic is that it destroys a human being. And the twisted versions of sex have done a number on us all. Whether the framework that you're walking into was that sex was unleashed and unlimited and that was the way it was in your life or you're coming in with a framework that in your home talk, even talk of the thought of sex was a straight path to hell. Either way, it's both just as wounding and just as far off from the goodness that God intended for sex to be. So where do we go from here? It's not like the starting point for us this morning is what is sex? The starting point for us today is we've been lied to about sex. The purpose of this series, Cupid Shuffle, is to rearrange what we've accepted as true, almost by osmosis of just like breathing the air around us, and trade in the lies, the misconceptions, and the twisted ideas for truth, for hope, for health, for good, for joy, for us to thrive. Today, I'm not here to preach condemnation. 
I'm here to preach deliverance. Titus chapter 3. This is a beautiful picture of deliverance. At one time, we too were foolish. We're all in the same boat together. Disobedient, deceived, we were lied to. And enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, some people call these strongholds. We lived in malice and envy and being hated and hating one another. But when the, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, delivered us from those lies. Not because of the righteous things we had done, not because we got it right or we're perfect or we've done nothing wrong. That's not why he saved us, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of the rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs of having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Paul's saying this is airtight. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. They're not going to go on doing what they were doing before. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. We've all gotten it wrong, and we've all been wronged. And God's love and mercy and grace can bring healing to every single one of us. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, which has just been so helpful to me over the last few years, talks about how being in this world, we've been formed. And then when we start following Jesus, there's a counterformation process back to the ways of God. And he says this, keep in mind that what we call traditional values were all radical when Jesus first introduced them. They were eventually adopted as the norm because they were based on a highly sophisticated and deeply wise view of human nature and frankly, because they work. When we live into Jesus, his vision, we thrive. God created sex to be a good thing. And when it's in its proper place, we thrive. Sex is a powerful thing. I mean, we're all here today because of it. Don't think about that too long, but, <laughs> you know. God is not anti-sex. He is pro-sex. Is that weird to say? Like, God is for sex. He created it to be a good thing. So how does God make sure anything good stays good? It's by creating boundaries. Money is good. It can help provide but it can also corrupt your heart. And so instead, he gives us the boundary marker of greed. It's like, okay, money's good, money's good, money's good. Greed, back up, Terry. You know, like, that's the, that's the boundary. Back up, Terry. The food is good. It nourishes our bodies, but when consumed improperly, it can really hurt you. Food is good, food is good. I'm, get, I'm becoming a glutton. Back up. This is Parenting 101. Good things need boundaries so they don't become destructive things. Boundaries give kids freedom to live individually. Boundaries help kids explore environments and opportunities. Boundaries keep kids from getting terribly, terribly hurt. Sex is no different. It's so powerful. It's like fire. Like fire in your fireplace at your house is a good thing. Fire outside of your fireplace at your house is a problem, right? It's a problem. And to my knowledge, in almost every instructional letter Paul sent to an early New Testament church, he included guidance on sexual boundaries. It's just because it can wreck things so fast. And even Paul says, it's not my place to judge those outside of the church. It's not my responsibility. That's not my thing. Same. 
Biblical sexual boundaries are pretty clear, honestly. And Jesus spoke this teaching when being questioned about marriage, divorce, and sexual immorality. Haven't you read, he, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Sexual intimacy, that's when it happens. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So that's a picture of the New Testament biblical sexual framework. It's within a marriage, the two become one. It's a powerful bond of unity, both spiritually and physically. And I think of the church, we make it seem like only certain groups of people have sexual boundaries. And you can think of the certain groups that we say like, oh no, this is the, uh, the, as if the rest of us are off the hook. And that's just not true. It's not true. Any of us living in the kingdom of God have sexual boundaries. You're married, for example, sexual boundary. Your spouse and your spouse only. Jesus told me and the rest of us on the Sermon on the Mount that if we even look at another person outside of our spouse with lust, we have committed adultery in our hearts. How's that for a boundary? Singleness, boundary, celibacy outside of God-honoring marriage. Engaged to be wed, sexual boundary. You have not yet been given over to each other by God and by family. And then there's Jesus himself. He was single, unmarried, sinless, implying celibacy. And yet he lived a purposeful, meaningful, God-pleasing, kingdom-building, perfect life. And so this idea that has gotten into the church that you must be married and having sex to feel joy and experience wholeness is an absolute disaster. And it hurts so many single people. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God called them. This is the rule I lay down to all of them. Here's another translation. And don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. That's preaching to somebody right now. Live and obey and love and believe right there. God, not your marital status, defines your life. Don't think I'm being harder on you than the other churches. I give them the same thing. The apostle Paul was celibate, while the apostle Peter had a wife. Both served the Lord in the condition in which they were called. And here's the deal. I'm married. I have kids. You understand what I'm implying. But I still can feel lonely at times. Yeah, sex is a part of my world, but I can still feel broken sometimes. Yeah, but I can still feel incomplete. And if I bought what the world is selling for what sex should do for me, at the core of who I am, I should feel completely whole by sex and sex alone. And that's just absolutely not my human experience in this reality and probably not yours either. You've been lied to and told that sex to you has to be everything. And then if you don't have it, you're nothing. Sex is not your deliverance. Sex is not your value. Sex is not your fulfillment. Sex is not your savior. Sex is not your identity. Sex is not your God. Jesus and Jesus alone is your deliverance. Jesus gives you your value. 
Jesus is your fulfillment, your satisfaction, your success, your savior. Jesus gives you your identity. Jesus is your God. We've been deceived into thinking that something other than Jesus can save us. And Jesus is the only one who can save. Now, coming into this room today, the desire of your heart was not to hear what the Bible says about sex. Probably not. Walking in, you probably already knew what it said, or you could guess it, whether you agree with it or not. You came in here today hoping for, whether you know it or not, deliverance. Deliverance from the wounds and the brokenness that this twisted world's version of sex has given to you. Shame, strongholds, addictions. Fire outside of the fireplace, leaving you gasping for air. The Gospel of John, it tells us that Jesus on his ministry tour had to go through Samaria. Now this is an area where him and his Jewish community would have hated Saw them as traitors, mudbloods, half-bloods, people who weren't worth talking to, even being next to. In fact, they would spend extra days walking around that area instead of walking through it, spitting on the ground as they do it, I suppose. Jesus had to go there, Scripture says. In our stories, too, Jesus has to go there. He has to go to where our wounds are, to where our scars are, to where the pain is. If we want his deliverance, he has to go there. And as he approaches this revered holy place, Jacob's well, people drew meaning and purpose, like cultural pride from this place. And I think of all the wells culturally that we draw our meaning, our success, our value, our identities from. For a lot of people, this is their sexuality. And as he sat down, the rest of the group went into town to get food, and a woman approaches to draw water from the well in the heat of the day. And this time, women would have easily gone in the morning, in the cool of the day. The fact that this woman was coming in the heat of the day means she was despised, she wouldn't be seen with, she was the black sheep. You can, in your mind, come up with the names that she was probably called. Maybe some of the names that you have been called. Or maybe some of the names you've called yourself. And Jesus asks for a drink, and she sharply questions, like, why his better-than-everyone-else Jewish self is talking to her. And he says, if only you knew who was asking you for a drink. You'd be asking me for a drink, like implying whatever you're drawing from in this cultural well, I got something that's just so much better, so much better. And she goes, where's your bucket, big stuff? Like, that's how she's talking to Jesus, which is crazy. How are you getting me this water? And he goes, no, the water I'm talking about, it like springs up like a fountain inside your heart. You'll you'll never be thirsty again. It will be a fountain in your soul that will never run out. And she finally goes, all right, why don't you give me some of this eternal mineral water you're talking about? And he goes, I would love to. Go get your husband. And in this moment, he's going to a place in her story where he is her savior has to go because that's where the epicenter of her pain and her shame and her wounds are. And he wants to bring deliverance. Eyes to the ground, you can imagine all the rushing names that she's been called over her, her heart beating, but at the same time, she's hard and she's not going to let in. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus goes, I know, 
You've had five husbands. And the guy that you're sleeping with now isn't your husband either. Now listen to me. He knows her. He knows her sin. He knows her shame. And he's still offering her deliverance. You hear me? She's like, I, I, you know, like you can imagine she's wrecked. She's like, I see you're a prophet. Let's change the subject here. Uh, you tell me that I got to go to church over here. And you say, you hate me. And then I have church over here. And then you say, it's not good enough. What are you going to do about that? And he answers her like, yeah, to give the answer to her question, but to reveal the coming of kingdom of God, he says, it's not going to matter where you go to church because the location of the church is going to change. God's not looking for a certain spot. He's looking for a person who will worship in spirit and in truth, in mind and heart, in soul, in body, the whole self. That's the church. And he goes, that time is now. And this whole thing jogs her memory of Sunday school classes and memory verses and conversations with her parents of how the Messiah, God's son, the Christ, would change everything. And this is exactly how he would talk. And she asks by almost like not asking, she goes, when the Messiah does come, he'll help us understand. He'll deliver us. He'll set us free. He'll save us. And he looks her in the eye and goes, I the one who's offering you deliverance today am he. And she's so taken by the moment. She's so overwhelmed with the fact that she just met the savior of the world that she runs and she leaves her jar. The jar that had represented all of her shame. The reason why she was the black sheep. The reason why she got called those names. This was represented in this jar. She left it behind. And she ran back to a town who wouldn't be seen with her to say, I have hope for you. I have such good news. And because of that, Jesus went to stay there a few more days. And remember, this was a town that would have thought that someone like Jesus would have hated him, just like you walked in today thinking that Jesus would hate you if he knew you. But we see something completely different. And instead, he walks into that town. And it said people were saved and delivered and they said, surely this man is the savior of the world. I don't know where you find yourself in that story. Whether it's the woman at the well, man at the well, five husbands, porn addiction, whatever it is. He saved us through the washing. Do you hear that language of water? The washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, not by our perfection, not by the things we got right, justified by his grace, that we might become heirs of the hope of eternal life. Ah, a well springing up inside of our hearts that cannot be taken away. The same mission trip to Las Vegas that's a part of my rooted story holds a real life woman at the well story. I was 18, or no, I was 21 at the time, and there was an 18 year old woman who was sharing her testimony to a bleacher stand full of college students and I was sitting in the back row. And I listened to her story and it was just a significant push to the snowball that was rolling down the mountain that was leading to my salvation, to me putting my faith in Jesus because I was hearing and seeing so much stuff on that trip that was like, if evil is this real, the opposite has to be true. I can't make sense of the universe if there's not good. 
because this bad is so real. And she tells this story of how the underbelly trap of everything you would imagine that Las Vegas could do to a young girl started in her life at the age of 13. And she went on in significant detail of the horrors she experienced at the hands of the world's twisted versions of sex. And she surfaced out of that storm at age 18 with the help of many people. And I'm sitting there absolutely broken, tears in my eyes. And she looks at us and she smiles. And she goes, but because of Jesus, Jesus says he loves me so I can love me. Jesus says I'm beautiful so I'm beautiful. God the Father calls me worthy so I'm worthy. No matter what's been done to me or what I've done. We've all been deceived, hurt or wounded or broken by the world's hijacking of God's beautiful creation of sex. I didn't come out unscathed either. Whether through things we've done or things done to us, thanks be to Jesus for his unlimited love and grace. Jesus, not sex, is your deliverance. Because God loves you you can love you. Because God says you're beautiful, you're beautiful. Because the Heavenly Father says you're worthy, you're worthy. So no more hiding, no more running. Run to God the Father, fall into his grace wholeheartedly, be washed with the living water that Jesus Christ offers. And for God's sake, leave your jar behind. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to her town and she said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. We all came in carrying something this morning. And the question is, will our response be like this woman's? Jesus invited her to something more, something better, something truer. And she had a decision to make. And she takes two steps that I think God's asking us, are we willing to take these steps today? And the first is she sets her jar down. This thing that's been a sense of security, this thing that she's been carrying around that has supplied something that she needed. But in that moment, it was nothing compared to what Jesus offered. And so she lays it down. And I don't know what your jar looks like this morning. I don't know what you came in carrying. And maybe you've even set it down before. And so you've picked it back up. But to think about setting it down again is scary. And Jesus is just asking, would you give it to me? Would you give this to me this morning? And would you let me show you something better that I have for you? But the second step she takes is really important. She doesn't just leave her old jar behind, right? She steps back into her community. And you think about how scary that must have been for her to go back to the people who have labeled her, who know her story, and to say, I have found something different. I have found something better. And I think there's an invitation for you too. 
And that's what happens when Jesus enters the darkest, hardest, scariest parts of our story. All of a sudden, they don't seem that dark anymore. All of a sudden, they don't seem that heavy anymore because when Jesus enters our stories, we lose all the shame and we find courage and we find hope. And all of a sudden, these things that weigh us down, they become a part of our testimony and an invitation to others to see what Jesus is up to. And so I want to challenge you this week to take one step further and invite your community in. And I don't know what that looks like for you. That might be going home today and setting up something on your devices that allows someone that you trust to know when you're tempted to click on that site. It might mean having an honest conversation with your spouse, with your partner, with your kids, with your parents, with your small group. Maybe you want to come to celebrate recovery this Thursday night and join a group of people who meet every Thursday at our church and say, we will not do this in isolation because we can't. We need each other. And we're going to celebrate how God is restoring us and bringing us hope in the hard parts of our stories. Maybe for you, it's just submitting a form on our hub form and just saying, I need some help in this area. Point me where I need to go. We have a pastoral staff that's available at our hub today. You can come and talk to us. We would love to have a conversation and help you take a step. Church, I'm so grateful that we can have this conversation. I'm so grateful that our God invites us to more. And so we're going to end our service today by singing and declaring these words that our God has chosen us, and he gives us a new name, and he makes us into something new. Let's celebrate the work of Jesus in our life this morning. Thanks for listening to the Third City Christian Church podcast. Please join us for one of our worship services at 9, 10, 15, or 11.30 a.m. in Grand Island and at 10, 15 a.m. in Broken Bow on Facebook Live and at thirdcityc.online.church each Sunday. For more information about Third City Christian Church, send email to podcast at thirdcityc.org. Call us at 308-384-5038 or visit us online at thirdcityc.org.